1: Good evening. Um, Tonight we are going to explore together the Fire Sermon, which is actually one of the most well-known teachings of the Buddha um, in the Theravada world. Um, I actually once saw a book of the hundred best speeches of all time, and this was in there. Um, and uh, this is the this is actually the third sermon that the Buddha gave after his awakening. So it's an important one. Usually those three are all uh, kept together. And um, I thought that before we explored the fire sermon, we could um, uh, hear a little bit about fire from a contemporary fire worshipper. And uh, Priya, of Iroquois Falls fame, is going to um, channel fire for us. Um, This is
2: a cover of Springsteen. As for Michael's request.
1: Said to me before she did this tonight, Did you read the lyrics? (laughs) (laughs) Really creepy. (laughs) (coughs) Thank you. This is called the Aditta Pariyaya Sutta. So this is from the Samyutta Nikaya. And this comes uh, right at the beginning of the Buddha's teaching career. So some of you might know that after the Buddha's awakening, he was... Um, um, split. He, he actually didn't know if he should teach. And uh, in some of the first teachings, uh, sometimes he even articulates this. Um, that if people didn't understand him, he wouldn't know what to do. And. Um, and actually, I'll just say before that that you know, the Buddha, when he had his experience of seeing that the self is a construct, and that uh, what the self actually is is everything. Um, and his awakening to the emptiness of the self, um, or the, the boundlessness, rather, of the self, um, uh, wasn't satisfying. So Nirvana was not satisfying for him. And uh, he waited around to know what the next thing to do was. And uh, I think it is really uh, an important part of the story that the Buddha's enlightenment was not complete until he got up and he started teaching and he started sharing. Because without karma, without action, there's nothing. So the Buddha's enlightenment is... It's nothing without karma, without action. And the consequence of that is partly us being here. Um, and, to continue with this theme of fire, you know, the Buddha, when he first started, to, he was on fire. I mean, his sermons are so long. And um, he just kind of hammers home these points. And the first point he hammers home for most of Uh, the beginning of his teaching and then towards the end also is just dukkha that um, we need to open to and full. his his words are to fully know dukkha which I've been translating this month as the inability to be content to fully know our capacity for not being able to uh, be fully in our lives and to be content with how things are so, one of the reasons why this is called the Fire Sermon, um, and some of you might also know that th- this sermon is quoted in the Wasteland, um, T.S. Eliot, after World War I, when he was, you know, devastated by the uh, consequences of World War I. And for those of you that, you know, forget about World War I, um, every battle <coughs> in World War I, there were like 100,000 troops being killed, sometimes in hand-to-hand combat, you know and um, um, Eliot wrote The Wasteland and and the third section of The Wasteland is called The Fire Sermon and uh, it's inspired by this this teaching. Um, So um, I'm just going to read to you a modified version, uh, a shortened version of The Fire Sermon. Um, Maybe a little bit more background also why it's called The Fire Sermon is that this was a teaching given to fire worshipers. So one of the first groups that came to, to, to learn from the Buddha was a group of Vedic um, fire worshipers who would uh, involve themselves in fire rituals to purify themselves. And um, so the Buddha plays with us a little bit. So here are these Vedic fire worshipers coming to hear a teaching from the Buddha, and he flips the idea of fire around, and offers this fire sermon. Uh, so just to hear that a little bit, not to forget who his audience is, and how he starts playing with the terms fire and burning um, um, with this group of people. Uh, thus I heard. That always begins, for those of you who haven't studied the Pali Canon, nobody knows this is the Buddhist teachings. We heard that this was the Buddhist teachings. So this takes care of fundamentalism. Um, on one occasion, uh, the Buddha was living at Gayahead, together with one thousand monks. In the translation, they're called bhikkhus, which means beggar, which are uh, these monks who are going around with their alms bowls, begging um, for support. Um, which is you? There he addressed the monks. Monks, everything is on fire. And what is this everything that is on fire? The eye is on fire. Form is on fire. Eye consciousness is burning. Eye contact is burning. Whatever is felt as pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that arises through eye contact for its condition, that too is burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of confusion. I say it's burning with birth, aging, and death with sorrows, lamentations, and pains, with griefs and despairs. The ear, monks, is on fire. Sounds, monks, are on fire. The nose, monks, is on fire. Odors are on fire. The tongue is on fire. Flavor is on fire. The body is on fire. Tangibles are on fire. The mind is burning, ideas are burning, consciousness is burning, mind contact is burning. Whatever we feel as pleasant or painful is burning. Everything is on fire. Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hate, with the fire of delusion. I say it's burning with birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and burning with despair, monks, when a noble follower has heard this truth and sees this for him or herself, she finds disenchantment with the eye, becomes disenchanted with form, becomes disenchanted with eye consciousness and eye contact and whatever is felt as pleasant is disenchanted with what's not pleasant, is disenchanted with what's pleasant and what's not pleasant. That arises through eye contact and is indispensable in that condition one finds disenchantment. She grows disenchanted with the ear and with sounds, disenchanted with the nose and odors, disenchanted with the tongue and flavors, disenchanted with the body and what the body contacts. When she finds disenchantment, passion fades out. With the fading of passion, she is liberated. When liberated, there's knowledge that she is liberated. She understands. Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What can be done is done. There is no more beyond. This is what the Buddha once said. The monks were glad and they approved of his words. During his utterance, the hearts of those 1,000 monks were liberated (coughs) and they stopped clinging. They stopped burning. So this is a shortened version and um wow has anybody ever felt like this really (laughs) um i just can't i I had such a good day in hamilton on sunday I, i know i haven't stopped talking about it but one of the things we we did in hamilton i went with my son and um He filmed those (laughs) big flames coming out of the factories, you know, and um, I think some of us know that our eyes have felt like this, and our skin has felt like this, and the world is like this, you know? Do you remember the first images coming back in the first week of the Iraq War in the early 90s of um, the oil fields on fire? I think, like, just to see that image of the fire, you know, and that, do, do you remember these pictures? I mean, it was really intense. Or the image I've been talking about a lot lately of Thich Nhat Hanh's student uh, immolating herself uh, during the Vietnam War, and to see this monk on fire, literally on fire, and you know, we go around in our neighborhood and we see fire, you know, things on fire. And so for us, I think one of the ways we understand burning is like the world out there is burning. And the Buddha says here, burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, the fire of hate or anger, and the fire of delusion. You can retranslate this, the fire of greed, the fire of ill will, and the fire of confusion. Being confused, being deluded, is also being on fire. So he's taking this this notion of fire and um, he's playing with it. Now, there's something to be said here culturally, too, not to forget, that, you know, nirvana is usually talked about as cooling. The word nirvana actually means to extinguish or to blow out. And, you know, our language comes from England and I think most of us, we talk about Warmth, like being warm-hearted. You know, so, so in a cold climate, what's championed is a language that values warmth and heat. But this is coming from a very hot climate, right? Um, and um, what's championed is coolness, <coughs> dispassion. So just keep that in mind as, as we're reading this, too. There might be a, a way that we might translate this differently. That um, um, if any of you have lived in a hot climate for a while, you know that what you mostly talk about is like how to cool down and how your day can be done at 8 a.m. Um and, you know, also, we could talk more about this, but, you know, the metaphors of any society are totally tied in to the climate and the landscape. And, and, and I think you can really feel that in this sutta. Um, does anybody have any thoughts about this before I keep going? I mean, that first line, everything is on fire. I don't know how the Buddha would have said it, but I would like. Everything is on fire. Everything is on fire. What what happens when I say this? When you hear this. It
2: sounds like another way of saying that everything is transient, because Christ transient is constantly consuming, and it's never,
1: mm-hmm. you know, fixed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I
2: would think more of as. Too
1: much? Too much? Yes. Yeah. Something. Excess. Excess.
2: For, for some reason, I think of it a, as, a, as a alive, because the fire has to be alive to be burning.
1: Yeah.
2: In different degrees of.
1: Um, How alive? Yeah. Yeah. And things be too alive. Mm -hmm. Mm. Uh huh. Out of control.
0: My (coughs) senses, like suffocating. Suffocating.
1: Consumption and suffocating. Mentally
0: suffocating. Yeah. Mm.
1: I mean, imagine these fire Mm -hmm. worshippers. They know something about fire, Mm -hmm. right? This is their, this is their path. Is working with fire, and the Buddha says to them, "Everything's burning." Which is, you know, uh, of course, they know everything's burning. But he's saying everything is burning. Yes?
2: I hearing that on fire with, the, you know, the heat of attachment, how yeah. much we're invested in our, you know, the yeah. things we love and the things we hate, yeah.
1: our opinions, yeah. how painful that is, it burns. Yeah. I mean, has anyone here ever, you know, lost somebody? Has anyone here ever lusted after somebody? Well, probably not here, but uh, out okay, right? there. <laughs> has anyone here ever, like, clung to something? Is clung a word, Aaron? Has anyone here ever clung to some, something? And has anyone here ever, like, been on fire from that? Like, really burned in that? You know, the heart of yoga practice we call tapas. Which means heat. It means the fire of um, the burning of being in between opposites. I want something that I can't get. And then there's more layers. I want something I can't get. Maybe one layer would be but I'm gonna go after it anyway. even though I can't get it. Yeah. Or when you get something you didn't want, or the psychology of wanting something you can't get and then getting it, <laughs> and then what do you do with your wanting? <laughs> you know, there, there's a, a you know one of the, the ways that psychoanalytic theory theorists theorize about this is that you know in the first few sessions uh a new uh client will often tell you the whole story and not only the whole story but the prognosis and also how they can be healed actually if you listen carefully they will give you the whole story they'll tell you what they need to do and they'll tell you how they can be healed and then uh if you actually gave them what they needed, they would run away because then it takes years actually for them to really integrate everything they've just said.
2: What would you be giving them that they need
1: Well, if you could give them what they needed
2: oh what
1: they need. uh like uh love, they'd take off <laughs>
0: you
1: know it's like it's like the person who's on fire and doesn't know what it means to be cooled out. And you could say that what we're doing... uh, You know, another word for cooling out is peace.
0: Mm.
1: You know, it's just like to cool out. You know, it's interesting politically, because I think, you know, especially for all of us lefties, you know, we talk a lot about justice. And, you know, like in Buddhist language, like, we don't talk about justice. Because there's this idea, I think, we have in left-wing politics that first you get justice... And then you get peace. So you fight for justice in a situation, and then peace <laughs> follows. But like the Buddhist perspective is totally the other way around. That just, you just put justice aside, actually. And, and the work is for peace. I mean, what if we thought this way? That the first thing we need to do is to try and find peace. And then the justice-peace follows. Rather than this, like, trying to get... Ju- when I hear the word justice, I'm like, I start to stiffen up. It's so problematic, you know. And so this idea of coolness is peace, how to find peace. And that's why last week I said, you know, this, this practice of meditation is a practice of peacemaking. And it's a practice of cooling out internally and, and hopefully growing a, a coolness in our culture to help cool out the fire of lust. And the fire of greed. And another, you know, Buddhist perspective would be, you know, because all of us want to be passionate. I'm an artist, I need to be passionate, you know, and Italian and big brush strokes and whatever. Um, but from the Buddhist perspective, you know, like we there isn't a value of passion. The, the what's given value is clarity. You know clarity and skillfulness upaya skillful means not passion Uh, the passion is just the energy we have when we're cool and we all know this when you're on fire you can't take in anything you know and people who you watch who have lives that are on fire they just like burn through other people's lives and 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 communities you know and, and and you know wreck them and we've all done this every one of us in here has done this we've burned somebody somehow for not being um, cool and not being um, what did I say um, not passion but uh, clarity not being clear um, okay so you might say, well, okay, fine. So the Buddha has recognized that everything's on fire. But then the Buddha does something really interesting, and this is the kind of like psychological turn in every single Buddhist teaching, is, but the fire is not just out there. <coughs> the fire is not just in Hamilton. The fire... So, so But this is, this is, you know, an important theological move here. Because the Buddha is teaching to fire worshippers, Right? And he's saying the fire is not out there. The fire is the fire that you need to take care of is in here. It's subjective. It's in here. And again, for those of you who, you know, have, have you know political lives, you know, the fire is not just out there. We've seen this over and over. You fight for a cause and then a new group comes in and they're just as troublesome. Because the fire is also in here, greed and hatred and confusion. We have to work on in, in here. Look at this line in the Bruce Springsteen song, when like he wakes up in the middle of the night with a freight train running through the middle of his head. Has anyone ever had a freight train running through their head? <laughs> And then he breaks it down even further. He says, if you look at our subjective experience, and this is the first time he's really teaching dependent origination, that the eye, the eye makes contact with form, yeah, which creates eye consciousness. The ear makes contact with sound, sound consciousness. He's showing how our experience is constructed, right? And then he's showing how the sound's not out there sound is not out there and it's also not in here it's both you need an ear to hear sound so the only sound you can ever hear is a subjective sound that you can't talk about sound without talking about your experience of sound because you can not experience sound outside your ear you can't experience the temperature in here outside of your skin you can't experience your life outside of your life. And so the Buddha is saying you only have the subjective. Now some of you have heard me say lots of times the, the, the most uh, precise part of the world you can ever really study is this body, actually. Because you can't experience anything independent of your senses. And so what we're doing in the yoga postures and in the breathing is we're restoring our senses. So they're receptive again. So that we're fully in these senses. And they're fully us. And then we can take in the world, hopefully less mediated by all the samsaric patterns of our sense organs. Psychologically, physiologically, culturally. So, you, it's not the world out there that's burning. Um, and we all know this that when you take care of the burning inside you, the world out there looks remarkably different. Has anybody ever had this experience? I remember this time, and you know, I always get this when I go to the Grange Park, which is the park that's behind the AGO, uh, now you know, surrounded by the AGO. Yeah. And uh, I remember once walking through that park, and um, it was one day I was at U of T and I was walking through the park and I just went through a breakup and I remember looking around at all the couples holding hands and it made me sick, <laughs> not only that, but the way the squirrels were playing together was it was like you know and um, and then I remember like several years later having a picnic with my girlfriend at the time in that park and it was so beautiful and all the lovers walking by the squirrels playing in the trees you know and so so the world out there is organized and you know when i use the word psychology what, what i'm saying is is how how we organize the world is our psychology so you can't separate the world from the psyche body how we organize, how we construct our experience from moment to moment or day to day or season to season and um, when we take care of the fire of lust fire of (coughs) hatred um, we're contributing something real in our neighborhoods then we might appreciate the squirrel when we're motivated by greed, um, everything out there is something we, we want and need to have. And if your subjective world is on fire, then the world out there is on fire. It's like we're living in a busy urban environment but your mind can't be busy and urban if you have a busy urban mind then you, there's no hope
0: just leave
1: now you have to cultivate a mind that is not busy and urban to really fully be in a busy urban society so tuesday night here in this building is a a, a force of coolness it's a fan And um, it's cooling down the the patterns of greed and hatred and confusion in our society. Um, And it's also helping us cultivate, especially the introverts, uh, pro-social qualities so that we can um, really engage with all the different parts of our society, especially the ones that don't fit into our view of what a social sphere is, or my social sphere is, so that we can reach out to people who don't even know they need reaching out to, and reach out to people who we've never seen, because we've been so consumed by lust. I did this interview on the CBC this weekend, um, the, t- the topic of the interview was how we don't have weekends anymore I, I don't know if we actually even talked about that but, um, <laughs> one of the things that uh, you know, I was asked, you know, what is the symptom of being stressed out and the, uh, you know, the expectation was oh you're not breathing or whatever but actually I realized in that moment that the real symptom when we're stressed out is self-centeredness that's like the primary symptom of being stressed out, is self-centeredness. And then the next major symptom of being stressed out is not having gratitude. Not appreciating what you have. And you could say that when we're on fire, there is no gratitude. There is no generosity. You know? Nowadays, like it's cool. Everybody's into mindfulness. And it's like... I even teach a course on mindfulness something. And, you know, the definition of mindfulness has been narrowed down to paying attention slowly to one thing at a time. And, like, for what? I mean, is it really so important that we all just start really going slow and paying attention? And like cutting our tomatoes really. You know. and, and now there's a real phenomenon of mindful eating, you know, like really going slow. And that's not what mindfulness is about. That, that's a modern psychiatric way of understanding, understanding the, the cognition in mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness is to cultivate generosity. It, it, is to work with our attentiveness in a way where we forget about ourselves where we open up to how the world is and we we start cultivating through attentiveness a kind of situational generosity where we can really extend care to others, where we're not just neutralizing the self-centeredness but we're really transforming the self um, to become more generous because we appreciate the ingredients of our life. And what we've got look in this room look at the ingredients in here imagine the kind of meal you could make <laughs> with the bodies in this room Has <laughs> anyone thought about this <laughs> last night a few of us went out for dinner and we ate duck heart anyone ever had a duck heart before Some people were sick after, but it was really interesting. Um, I've never done that before. I'm going to have nightmares for the rest of them. It's totally outside of anything that I would ever... It was really fun, sort of. It was cooked. (laughs) Over a flame. Where is I going with that? <laughs> <laughs> the Ingredients. thank you. <laughs> um, yeah the ingredients I mean like look at the, look around in here. I mean everybody in here has amazing lives and can contribute so much. But when you're on fire, when you're on fire and you're just burning with uh, detachment, attachment. And, and craving and lust and like you're not helpful to any of us you're not a good ingredient <laughs> you're a fried up little heart
0: <laughs>
1: and, um, sometimes people that I know who are addicts I want to like open up their eyes and show them the people around them. To show them the amazing people they have around them. And also to show them how their addictions cause so much devastation in the lives of the people around them. But you can't. Because somebody who's really deep in addiction, they just they can't see outside of that groove, mm-hmm. outside of that pattern so mindfulness is not just paying attention to your breath it's paying attention to what's going on through the anchor of this body and the subjective world to cultivate a a generous spirit that we all share that connects us to our commonality so that we can live lives that are creative and that are based on a loving actions, loving actions. Um, And that's what we're doing here, week after week. And because there's no end to fire, there's no end to cooling possibility, which means there's no end to your life, which means there's no end to your practice. So, if your practice and your life are actually the same thing, then you can't ever stop practicing. (laughs) You can't ever stop practicing. And if anyone ever told you, or tells you, that there is an enlightenment where there is no delusion, then uh, you better keep your eyes open and be careful because even in enlightenment there's still fire and there's still the capacity for delusion Um, so you never get to stop practicing I've met people who are like I don't practice anymore (coughs) I reached a (laughs) I reached a stage I don't have to practice anymore oh yeah, okay Untouchable. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, and we could go deeper into the Sutta, and, I, and I'm not going to more because I think you, you get the, the sense of it, but um, that, not to forget that the Buddha is teaching a group of how many? A thousand. I think one of the ways to read this is to, to remember that the Buddha taught a public path. It's a public path. It's a, it's a social path of awakening. Not an, he didn't say, I need to talk to each monk here one by one. He didn't. He taught a thousand people. And lately I've been thinking about this a lot. Because I try to picture. I haven't been to um, Gaia Head. Um, Pat, did you go there? Bodh Gaya? Yeah. yeah. So I'm trying to picture like Bodh Gaya 2,500 years ago and a thousand monks there. That's, or, or and, and then when they become bhikkhus and they start traveling with them, imagine you're in a little town and 2,000 monks mm-hmm. come. This is like an economic situation, <laughs> a political situation. But all those monks, that's an army. That's a, imagine them coming down a hill that's an army of coolness, of peace, like those monks that I talked about last week. Who will meet some of them in October? On that third day of the protests in two thousand seven, in September, this week, in Burma, this week actually, um, almost to the day. And when the there was some protest, it was all going to be shut down. The next morning, everything was quiet. Nobody knew which way things were going to go. Was it going to be like 1988, where the dictatorship wins? And then the monastery doors open from all directions, and the monks come marching out uh, with nothing, bare feet, chanting loving kindness to the military regime, right in front of their face. And um, that's, a, that's an army of... Qu- So now, and say, is center of gravity the cool place to be (laughs) on Tuesday night? Be like, (laughs) yeah. And if someone says, is it a cult? You can say, it's an army. (laughs) And like, maybe we can start to think about um, uh, those robes that we see, whether they're saffron, whether in Korea they're gray, whether in Japan they're black, as the uniform of an army, of an army of coolness that's helping to put out the fires um, that we have inside us and in our institutions. And uh, that's what we're doing. This is an army. And uh, instead of this, we do this. (laughs) Instead of sirens, we have a gong. And instead of weapons uh, and bullets, we have privilege. We have the privilege of leisure time. We have the privilege of health and intelligence and community and we can take the privilege and we can either use it to continue to plant the kind of greed and exploitation that we've been doing, or we can use it to start a military, an army of um, militant peacemakers. Do you know the kind of discipline that those monks must have had in the face of watching other monks get tied up and beaten? To stay cool, and to not hit anybody, and to not push anybody, to not yell at anyone, and to continue chanting the Metta Sutta, loving kindness. I don't know. In the G8 and the G20, in, in the summertime, you know, when we were marching and the black block left us and you know started doing what they were doing, like. I I wasn't upset. I felt a kind of relief, like, something's going to burn. And like, how the hell do we, like, say something? And I didn't know in me what the discipline was, what the line was. One second it was, I don't like what they're doing. One second it was like, I'm glad somebody's doing something. One second it was like, oh, I see how this is going to get spun another second it's like people are really getting hurt people are their their heads are getting bashed in literally and um... and in that confusion what do you do and and this is where you need the discipline of a militant peacemaking love gang Don't quote me on that. So how can we use our resources internally and also our resources as a community to create an enlightened citizenship so that we can cool out? And, um, you know, maybe for some of us, we really need to look inside and see where we really need to cool out it's so much easier to look out there. I can drive my car by those steel factories in Hamilton and go, what are they doing? But I'm driving my car by those factories. I'm burning fuel like those factories. I am the factory. And I'm also on fire. I, I, I love my car. So I think we can all really look at where we're attached, where we're clinging. And then also, you know, emotionally, where we have freight trains running through our head. And we don't know really how to work with it. And I hope that some nights you come here and you sit and it's really hard and you can't sit still and you feel the freight train because when you have that experience it will motivate you to learn more so that you can continue practicing because it doesn't end and the freight trains don't stop and the more sensitive you become in this practice the more skillful you have at dealing with the freight trains but you can't stop them they're going to come and people around you are going to die and they're going to get sick and you're going to have to go to the hospital and you're going to have to visit your alcoholic cousin you know in bed you're going to have to clean his house you're going to have to pick up after people change diapers that doesn't that's that's inevitable but you can meet it with coolness and with generosity so maybe when we say warm-hearted, we can really think of cool-hearted.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. cool Yeah? I think it's a bit of... Okay, <laughs> nice try. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: but, but
1: again, this idea of nirvana is to extinguish, to extinguish the passions. Yeah. I think there's a piece missing. Uh-huh. If everything is on fire then everything is on
2: fire. Even yeah. practice is on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Even extinguishing is on fire. So what, when you talk, I find yeah. that there's firing, and there's extinguishing. And I, yeah. I find that the distinction yeah. is not that clear. Yeah. And that's really yeah. where the work, it's yeah. hard. Uh-huh. And how do you? Um,
1: like, how do you find the line between the objective and the subjective?
2: Maybe yes, but also you started talking about independent origination, yeah, and how things fire up when they touch each other, yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's rather more problematic when you think about it like that. Yeah. Because when you talk about it in fire and cooling, yeah, there are these two things. But when you talk about things meeting, yeah, there's always a fire. Yeah. Even
1: in extinguishing. Yeah. Yeah. But is it possible to have the ear make contact with sound and not experience that through the fire of lust, the fire of uh, ill will, and the fire of delusion? Yeah,
2: I guess it is. And at the same time, circumstances keep changing. So the way you meet something without lust the yes. first time,
1: you might meet with lust the second. Yeah. Time. Oh yeah, that's why we practice. Yeah,
2: that's what I was.
1: Yeah. 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 How often this happens is like, oh, I've worked through that, yeah. <laughs> and then six years later, it's like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's
2: why you keep practicing.
1: Right. That's why you keep like every once in a while I have this idea of like I'm just gonna quit relationships.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, uh, Bob Dylan has a song called "Love Sick" that I just quoted in a little essay I wrote, and and in, in, in the chorus it says, um, "I'm sick of love, and I'm in the thick of it." <laughs> And uh, I I think we're all in the thick of it. And that's what we have to work with. You know, it's like people who say, you know, I'm having a lot of relationship problems, so I just need to stop having, you know, intimate relationships. But it's like, but then you can't work through it. So you need to be fully in the fire to work with the fire. And the fire worshippers know that. The other thing he's playing with here that I think you might touch on too is that sometimes the Buddha went to these groups and would say like, the fire's not out there, the fire's in here. Or he would go to groups that like there's one s- sutta, I, I can't remember it exactly where there's people who worship the direct four directions and he says the direction's not out there. He says, and I can't remember how it goes, but something like the north is your family and the east is your enemies and the west is your children. And so you, you worship through generosity to those conditions rather than worshiping some, like, the west. You know? And he does this a lot where he takes like the thing that a group worships And he says, it's in here also, to come back. So yes, the fire is out there, and there are going to be fires burning out there. And at the same time, how you experience the out there has everything to do with the in here. And then the in here is constructed also by the out there. So, um... Good luck. <laughs> Let me know how it goes. Maybe next week you can check in with people and see. Yeah, I think actually if we were to do a group exercise around this, I, I think one of the questions that would be really good if we had a lot of time to talk with each other about would be um, you know, to, to identify what your experience of burning is. You know, how do you experience burning? now in your life like this week how do you experience burning and then also to recognize how do you experience coolness peace how do you experience peace and then maybe a third question be and how can you nourish peace how can you nourish the conditions that give rise to peace I think sometimes we're so focused on what's burning, actually, that we forget in the week what was peaceful, or like you lie in bed to review your day, and you, you forget what was good. We only focused on what was burning. It
0: seems like they're mutually exclusive, the way you talk about it. Like, like that doesn't really, like, we need fire. We can't not have fire. Sure. Water and fire need yeah. each other to balance, young yeah. and young. Yeah. We have excess the...
1: Yeah, he's not talking that. about fire in general. He's talking about the fire of lust. Right,
2: okay. So just in the, the, fire of
1: of anger, <coughs> the fire of anger, the fire of delusion. Right. So we're not talking about the fire of love or, or any kind
0: like of positive fire. Yeah.
1: Well, like I said, there's a cultural vocabulary yeah. here. Yeah. So we're, we're doing cross cultural linguistics yeah. something, in translation. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, there's also fires that are great.
2: I go, yeah. So just for fun, northeast, west, what was
1: south? Oh, I can't. And, and those ones are all wrong. I'm just making it up off the top of my head. But there is a sutta. I'll remember it and I'll let you know where he, he speaks like this. Don't quote me on that either. Let's finish chanting.